these words of David. From the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, help us to listen this evening. Work in us. Work through us. Help us to come alive in the great gift of life that you have given in us uh, and move us closer towards our Heavenly Father who's calling to us each and every day. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You repair a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. For I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. So the topic at hand this evening is the sacrament of confirmation. And we're going to do just a little bit of a review. Um, I think it's good as we continue to cover the sacraments to um, just have in our mind what grace is. What are these encounters with our Lord Jesus that he has instituted these physical signs and symbols that he has put forward for our benefit in a human way so that we can receive his grace. What exactly are we talking about when we say grace? So as you see there, just to review, grace is favor, the free, undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of divine nature and eternal life. A few weeks ago, you heard me say, grace is God's life living within us, but that point B here, it's a uh, recapping of that, it's participation in the life of God, God's life living within us, and it introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life. So then we have two categories of grace. So we go through this review quickly. We have the first one, sanctifying grace, which heals our souls, restores us to God and his divine life in us. So this is the grace that changes us, that restores us, it renews us. It re helps restore that original state that we were created in the Garden of Eden. And then we have point B there, actual grace. The actual grace that pushes us towards God and following after him. It's the thing that gives us that nudge to continue to act. It endows us with the capacity and capability to act. And we have the responsibility to respond to it. So it's God leaves it open to us. He's always given us actual graces that draw us closer to himself. And he desires so deeply that we respond to his first initiative. 
So then for the seven sacraments, we've defined them outward signs of inward grace. Think of them as conduits or the tubing, as Chad described it, with uh, the tubing that holds wires through which electricity flows, a channel um, by which the gift of sanctifying grace gets from God into us. And they're tangible encounters. So they deal with our whole human person, the senses. So if you smell an aroma tonight, it's actually a preview of the Sacrament of Confirmation because I'm uh, diffusing chrism, essential oil. It's a knockoff. It's not actually chrism, but it's flavored like chrism. So if you smell anything in the air tonight, it's because God wants us to have human encounters with him through the sacraments. And so it involves our sight, our taste, as in the Eucharist, our touch, our smelling. Everything of the human person is encapsulated because he wants to reach out to us in a way that we can receive. So then on page two there, you see each sacrament comprises two main components. Matter, what I was just talking about, the physical stuff, and then the how. The words that we hear, the formula how we administer the sacrament, compose the sacraments. And then on there, um, you see some of them marked with the asterisk. And Chad introduced that a few weeks ago when talking about baptism, about them being fonts. Those sacraments are fonts of grace. So we only receive them once because the font, the spring, just keeps on welling up inside of us. So baptism is one of them. Confirmation is another. And we're going to find out why we're going to talk about these in conjunction together. So why I'm not necessarily reviewing the Eucharist tonight, but why I am want to spend some time with baptism. So then 0.4, baptism. From the very first day of Pentecost, the church has celebrated and administered holy baptism. Think of Acts right after Pentecost. Peter goes out and preaches, and all the Jews that listen, they're cut to the heart, and they say, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, and you will be saved. So from that beginning on, baptism was the ordinary ministry of the church for salvation. And then baptism is always seen connected with faith. It is called the sacrament of faith. And we enter into it with proper understanding of what we're getting ourselves into. We're no longer ourselves. We're dying to ourselves. We're going into the grave with Jesus in the waters. And when we come up, we're resurrected with him and we live a new life. It's now his life in us. The baptized have put on Christ through the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a bath that purifies, justifies, and sanctifies. And then in C, hence baptism is a bath of water in which the imperishable seed of the word of God produces its life-giving effect. St. Augustine says of baptism, the word is brought to the material element and it becomes a sacrament. And so Chad kind of detailed for us and so you weren't there that night. Um, why did Jesus have to be baptized? He had to cleanse the water. And so the word comes into the water, comes into that material element, and changes it for our benefit, 
for our good and to bring himself bring us to himself so then on the bottom there of page or middle of the way on page two um, you can see it's a snapshot of the table that Josh put together from the Emmaus Institute um, it's online it's a great table uh, but you see there on baptism so we're going to kind of follow that but um, on there if you see sacramentum tantum res et sacramentum res tantum uh, you might be like I have no clue what those Latin words are so at the bottom of the page let's just define the parts of a sacrament so the sacramentum tantum are the sacramental elements that make up the sacrament in and of these cells they're only elements and not sanctifying so if we go and look at that part of the table there you can see the form so what are the words said what's the matter what's the physical stuff and then who's the minister then we have the res et sacramentum the graces the changes the effects from the sacraments becoming conduits for grace these are the physical elements infused with grace so these are the things the graces the effects that it has on us and then the res tantum that's the grace of god present in the sacrament with its specific effects particular to the sacraments so on here um, we have entering into filial relationship with god for baptism remission of sins sacramental bond with the body of christ but then in the eschatology the looking forward to the end times what does it help us come to realize the resurrection glorified body white garments and revelation for so that's just an example for baptism so you can see that there um, we're going to look at that as we kind of go along for the various sacraments so quick review just kind of where we've been hopefully jogged some of your memory um, and then we come to the sacrament of confirmation our topic at hand I'd like to begin with a little natural analogy. Uh, yes, Paul. So let's begin, just explore the nature of confirmation with a short little demonstration. So uh, just think in your head, we kind of already reviewed it, but what is the matter of baptism? And then what are the effects of baptism? Take a moment just to kind of call to mind, what is the matter of baptism? Okay, what is the matter of baptism? Go ahead, anyone from the water? water? Okay, great. And then um, what are the effects? New life, made a son and a daughter of God, membership in the body of Christ. Um, soul is cleansed, perfect. So uh, before you in the jar, if you want to go ahead and open that, unscrew it and open it, we could think of some water here. So what I'd like you to do here next is if you flip over on page three, you can see the directions up there. But take your mason jar filled with water and then add the oil that's in the cup to it. Put the lid back on and screw it back on and then shake it up and then just let it sit there on the table. Yeah, all of it. So once you dump it in, you can go ahead, put the lid, shake it up. We'll come back to that just here in a minute. We're going to let those rest. Um, we're going to continue our discussion here. So um, 
1.2, confirmation, the economy of salvation. Confirmation in the way that God works, his saving works here on earth. So first, we must realize Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of God's saving mission. So from the Catechism, paragraph 1286. In the Old Testament, the prophets announced that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on the hoped-for Messiah for his saving mission. The descent of the Holy Spirit on Jesus at his baptism by John was the sign that this was he who was to come, the Messiah, the Son of God, right? So think we have that in our head. We've heard that story before. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit for his whole life and his whole mission are carried out in total communion with the Holy Spirit whom the Father gives him without measure. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of God's saving mission. And we come and encounter that in the New Testament, but that's not where the story begins, as this paragraph says. The Old Testament, the prophets announced that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on the hope for Messiah. So then the role of the Messiah was promised to us. We hear of it in Isaiah, in chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, says the speaker, because the Lord has anointed me. And then the speaker continues the various things that the Messiah is going to do. He's going to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, announce a year of favor to the Lord, and to give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a glorious mantle instead of a faint spirit. Those parts are not included in your handout. But just to have the brief overview from Isaiah 61, that the Messiah, the speaker in this point, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him. So then what happens at Jesus' baptism? After Jesus was baptized, he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending upon like a dove and coming upon him. If we pair that with John the Baptist's testimony, John testified further, saying, I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from the sky and remain upon him. I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, On whoever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Jesus at his baptism. Spirit comes down. John testifies, this is the one. Because the one who sent me to baptize said, when you see that spirit come down, he is the Messiah. And then ultimately that the Messiah is going to be the king of Israel. So again in Isaiah in chapter 11. But a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, and his roots and from his roots a bud shall blossom and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So you see the connection there between 61 and 11. But then this shoot that's going to sprout from the stump of Jesse, we've got to know who Jesse is. So who is Jesse? David's father. David's father. So from the lineage of David. So this shoot that comes from David's line he is going to have the Spirit of the Lord rest upon him. So not only will this be a king, but this is going to be the Messiah king. And if 
Spirit comes on Jesus at his baptism, and John says, this is the one. And we see that this is the fulfillment of those promises. So then in letter C there, Jesus brings to completion God's saving work. So Jesus, this is where he actually takes ownership. He announces in the Messiah. So in Luke 4, if you know the story, he comes to Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, as was his custom. And then he's handed a scroll from Isaiah. He unrolls it, and then he reads this exact passages from 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Rolling up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the... And of the eyes of, and all and the eyes of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. And he said to them, "Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing." So we're seeing the flow, and then we're seeing how Jesus comes to show others. One of my favorite stories, actually, um, in scripture, is when John is in prison and he sends his followers to Jesus, and they ask him. Are you the one, or should we look for another? And what's Jesus going to send them back to? He says, look, what's happening? He said, are the blind recovering their sight? Do the deaf hear? Do the lame walk? And so he rattles off this checklist of all the things that the Messiah is going to be doing. And so he sends them back with just consider what was promised and what you see now. And so I just love that connection, that interplay there. Um, but it, for us, you know, okay, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointing me to do these things. But it's because those things were promised a long time ago. The people in Nazareth should have been looking for these sign markers. And they're recorded for us, both back then and now, um, for our faith, for our understanding. But Jesus doesn't want to do it alone. So we get to point D here. We share in that same ministry by our baptism. So Roman numeral I from the Catechism, paragraph 783. Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit and established as priest, prophet, and king. The whole people of God participate in these three offices of Christ and bears the responsibilities for mission and service that flow from them. Next paragraph continues on, and I broke it up just so we can see... Um, the three offices of Christ. On entering the people of God through faith and baptism, so at baptism we are made these things, priest, prophet, and kings. And then you can see in sacred scripture in the Old Testament where we can draw back to this type for our Lord Jesus. So he comes to embody this perfectly for the people of Israel as the Messiah, but as priests. He is a priest. He is priest par excellence, priest in the line of Melchizedek. Um, but we see that in the Old Testament there from Exodus, how were priests consecrated? How were they set apart? They were anointed with oil as Aaron and his sons were. And then how was a king made a king? Again, he was anointed. So we have recorded there from 1 Samuel. Then Samuel said to Jesse, all your sons here. And he said, 
There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Same language, same imagery. We can see something is at work here. And then as prophets. Thus says the Lord, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit from the prophet Joel. So as the church states, and we're going to develop that here in a little bit more through Jesus' ministry, at baptism were made priest, prophet, and kings. And how those were ritually done is by anointing with oil. So then we come to Jesus' invitation and our participation in it. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. But I say it's at here by the time we get to the end of this point. So paragraph 1287 from the Catechism. The fullness of the Spirit was not to remain uniquely the Messiah's, but was to be communicated to the whole Messianic people. On several occasions, Christ promised this outpouring of the Spirit, a promise which he fulfilled first on Easter Sunday, then more strikingly at Pentecost. Filled with the Holy Spirit, the apostles began to proclaim the mighty works of God, and Peter declared this outpouring of the Spirit to be a sign of the Messianic age. And so the section that we don't have here, but we could look it up in Acts of the Apostles, he quotes Joel. So the one that we had just heard there as prophets, he quotes, he refers back to, and he says, what was promised by Joel is happening right now at Pentecost, through this new outpouring. Those who believed in the apostolic preaching and were baptized received the gift of the Holy Spirit in their turn. So we heard two events there. I'm going to develop a third. So the first was on Easter Sunday, where you see that in... Number one, the apostles received the Holy Spirit. So on the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked, Jesus comes. He says, peace be with you. And he says to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So he sends forward the Holy Spirit upon them by his breath. But then later on, he says, stay in Jerusalem until you, you are clothed with power on high. And so they know that something maybe more is going to happen here. And so they're gathered at Pentecost when this being clothed on high that the Lord speaks about happens. So they're gathered. And then what happens? A noise comes from the sky, like a strong driving wind fills the entire house which they were and then as you see then appeared to them tongues as of fire which parted and came to rest on each of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the spirit enabled them to proclaim you know the story of pentecost they go out 
And then all the people gathered in Jerusalem who come from the various ends of the world can hear them speaking in their own language. But they know that these are Hebrew men. And how is this happening? The Spirit allows them to proclaim so that the good news can go to the ends of the world. Something's changing here. And then the world changes. So on your sheet here in point three, a little snippet from Acts 4. It's part of a prayer, but it begins with Sovereign Lord. And they pray, Enable your servants to speak your word with all boldness as you stretch forth your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. As they prayed, the place where they were gathered shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. If you remember our parish theme for this year, At the Feet of Peter, that little snippet comes not too far after this because the first thing that happens after they make this prayer is literally the community of believers goes and sells everything that they have and lays it at the feet of the apostle. And there was no one needy among them. How many are, of you are ready to go and sell everything that you have and lay it at the feet of the apostles? I see no hands. Right? It seems crazy to do that, but they were so moved with the Holy Spirit that they had trust in the community. And they made this radical move, but it wasn't so radical to them because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? For us in our time, we're like, no way, couldn't do that. But the world began to change. And so then under point three there, you see a couple of different encounters where we can see the world has changed. So we see the witness of Stephen when he goes in front of the council, the elders, and he's eventually martyred. And from there, shakes things up a little bit. People have to get out of Jerusalem. They start dispersing. and The word goes a little bit further. Then we have a guy Saul of Tarsus, persecuting the Christians, but he's eventually converted. And he's brought into the community by fellow believers. And he changes his way, and he becomes the great apostle Paul, who's right there. And slowly, he goes to other communities and introduces them to the Lord Jesus. And they come to believe and are baptized, and the word continues to go. Then we have the revelation that Gentiles are made co-heirs. And so now all the peoples of the world are beginning to be brought into God's family that he had planned from the beginning. And then ultimately Paul continues his missionary journeys and the word goes out to the end of the world. All of this amidst persecution, against troubles, against being shipwrecked and beaten and hardships and obstacles. But they go forward without fear because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The world has changed. That's the thing I love about that account from Acts. Peter and John get back and they're like, guys, they tried to jail us. They couldn't do anything to us. We were untouchable. This is what the Lord Jesus does in us. We're untouchable. Not in a brazen we're just going to go and do reckless things because they were totally filled with the grace of God, went forward with power, and this creative force that brought love to the world.
confirmation continues Pentecost, letter F there. Paragraph 1288 from the Catechism. From the time on the Apostles, from that time on the Apostles in fulfillment of Christ's will, imparted to the newly baptized by the laying on of hands the gifts the gift of the Spirit that completes the grace of baptism, the sacrament of confirmation, which in a certain way perpetuates the grace of Pentecost in the church. So I just kind of condensed that paragraph together, but you can see there what we're getting at. Fulfillment of Christ's will, parts the newly baptized by the laying on of hands, the gifts of the Spirit that completes the grace of baptism, and then the sacrament of confirmation, which in a certain way perpetuates the grace of Pentecost in the church. So in the context of the community, as Chad said. So I want to take a brief break and look at our jars. Okay, so take a look. What's happened to them? The water is on the bottom. The oil is sat to the top. No matter how hard we shake, they're always going to be separated. That's a little bit of chemistry. I'd have to call um, Katie for explaining why that is. But I at least want to use this as an example to get us to now begin to enter into the conversation. What's the matter? So we've seen how confirmation works in God's saving plan. But then how's, what, what do we come to know and experience through this? So then we come to the matter. Canon 880, from the Code of Canon Law, the sacrament of confirmation is conferred by anointing of chrism on the forehead, by which is done by, which is done by the imposition of the hand, and through the words prescribed in the approved liturgical book. Chrism. So what is chrism? We have to consider that. I mentioned that, so... Letter A there. In the Catechism, 1293, entreating the rite of confirmation is fitting to consider the signs of anointing and what it signifies and imprints a spiritual seal. Anointing in biblical and other symbolism is rich in meaning. Oil. So there's a reason why we put oil in our water because oil's a part of the sacrament of confirmation. And we saw just a while back ago how anointing with oil was meaningful in the context of the history of salvation. And oil carries a whole bunch of meanings to it. So it's a sign of abundance and joy. We heard that in Psalm 23. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. I am bountiful. I have abundance and joy. It cleanses before or after a bath. If you're like me, I thought I was an oily bohunk, but I'm not because this winter my skin has been so dry and I've had to oil myself up just to try to keep some of that moisture in. Um, so it can be used before or after a bath to kind of help cleanse us, get rid of things. Um, some Materials can only be removed by oil-based products because of, yep, mm-hmm. So there's that aspect of oil. Oil limbers, 
So think of Greek athletes. In order to be better wrestlers, they would oil themselves up so they're slippery. That's what I love to talk about. Like, why oil? Why would we use oil? Because it makes us slippery in the devil's hands. It can't get a hold of us. Why use oil at baptism and confirmation? Well, he slipped through his hands. Can't be grasped. It's a sign of healing since it soothes bruises and wounds. So if you put like burn salve on something, that word is, salv- is the same that is expanded to have salvation. So it's a sign of healing. And then it makes radiant with beauty for health and strength. So oil of Olay, like we know the company of Olay, but it was originally an oil-based product that was used for makeup. Um, I don't use it, so I blinked on the word there. Um, But you can see it's a sign of beauty. So oil, when we come to say why use oil, we have to take into account all these meanings that God is bringing into um, this sacramental encounter through him. So then number two there, what is chrism? Chrism is perfumed oil. It's olive oil infused with balsam and other perfumes that's consecrated by the bishop, which signifies the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's to be used in the sacrament of confirmation, even if a presbyter administers the sacrament. So bishops being the successors of the apostles, who on Easter afternoon had the Spirit breathed upon them, the apostles, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit and he breathes on them. So then letter A there under point two, when he, Jesus, had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then from the rubrics of how do you consecrate, how do you make chrism, Roman numeral I there, then the bishop, if appropriate, breathes upon the opening of the vessel containing the chrism, and with his hands extended, says one or other of the following prayers of consecration. Jesus breathes on the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit. Those same people breathe on this just plain oil with some perfumes in it. It makes it something other than it is. And then Roman numeral two, from very early on, the better to signify the gift of the Holy Spirit and anointing with performed perfumed oil chrism was added on to the laying of hands. So before it was just the bishop would lay on hands, but then to better signify the gift of the Holy Spirit because we're wrapping up all the context that we talked about of why anoint and how we have seen anointing used in sacred scripture. So it comes to magnify our experience as well as for us when we're reading and we're hearing God's word and we're attentive to it, we're taking in this whole world on this moment of this imparting of oil. Back over to letter B from the Catechism 1291. A custom of the Roman church facilitated the development of the Western practice, a double anointing with sacred chrism after baptism. The first anointing at baptism by the priest is completed by a second anointing on the forehead of the newly baptized by the bishop. 
And then if baptism is conferred on adult in letter C here, there's only one post-baptismal anointing, that of confirmation. So I put that in, note in here because for our catechumens who will be baptized at the Easter Vigil, there's only one anointing, um, but just for your reference. For baptizing as an infant, you get anointed with chrism at the end of baptism, and then you get that double anointing, that second anointing at confirmation. Um, but when we celebrate Easter Vigil, there's only one post-baptismal anointing, that of confirmation. Another component, another part of the matter of confirmation is laying on of hands. Letter B there, and then point one. From the time of the apostles, from the, that time on, the apostles in the fulfillment of Christ's will imparted to the newly baptized by the laying on of hands the gift of the Spirit that completes the grace of baptism. For this reason, in the letter to the Hebrews, the doctrine concerning baptism in the laying hand is listed among the first elements of Christian instruction. So letter A underneath number one has that right there. Therefore, let us leave behind the basic teaching about Christ and advance to maturity without laying the foundation all over again. Repentance from dead works and faith in God, instruction about baptism and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And then to actually see this at work in the church, when Apollos, in point letter B there, when Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior of the country and came down to Ephesus where he found some disciples. Skipping ahead a few verses there, and you have it in the cutout. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came down upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there are about 12 men. So they're baptized, and then Paul completes the act by the laying on of hands. Back over to point two. By confirmation, Christians, that is, those who are anointed, share more completely in the mission of Jesus Christ and the fullness of the Holy Spirit with which he is filled so that their lives may give off the aroma of Christ, which we smell in the air. So chrism is the only oil that we use in the sacraments that has a specific smell to it. Um, and it's for this purpose that we have this aroma of Christ in us. So then what is the form of confirmation? 1.4 there. Letter A. When confirmation is celebrated separately from baptize, baptism, as in the case in the Roman Rite, the liturgy of confirmation begins with a renewal of baptismal promises and the profession of faith by the confirmands, those to be confirmed. This clearly shows that confirmation follows baptism. So we renew baptismal promises, make a profession of faith, and then we move on to confirmation. Letter B there describes... And you can see it. Minister of the sacrament says, name, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. The confirmand responds, amen. And then the rite for the individual concludes with a sign of peace. And then letter C there has from the catechism paragraph 1300, the sign of peace that concludes the rite of the sacrament signifies and demonstrates ecclesial communion with the bishop and all the faithful. So you end with a sign of peace, 
The bishop says, peace be with you. And you say, and with your spirit. Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. The words respond, amen. And then peace be with you and with your spirit. So you've brought into a more deeper union with the church. And then who's the primary minister? 1.5. The ordinary minister of confirmation is the bishop. A priest or a presbyter can do it, provided this faculty in virtue of the universal law or special grant of the competent authority also confers this sacrament validly. So when I was working in Emporia, I had to always draft a list of those to be confirmed during the pandemic because normally the bishop just comes around, but we had two confirmations that we had to do without the bishop being able to come and administer the sacrament of confirmation. So I sent a list to Archbishop Nauman about a few weeks ahead of time and said, could Father Farrar please have permission to administer the sacrament of confirmation on these individuals? Received, yep, that's okay. If uh, he wouldn't have said yes, and we would have went ahead and done things, that sacrament would not have been valid because Father Farrar did not have the ability to administer that faculty, that power, that ability resides with the successor of the apostles, the bishops. Um, and then they delegate it out. So a little bit ago, we heard double anointing. Uh, and then we come to see like, okay, well, why would in the Latin rite from 1.4 letter A, um, there be a separation here? Might be a question of why is this, why is this? So then in 1.5 letter B, we get the answer from the Catechism in paragraph 1290. In the first centuries, confirmation generally comprised one single celebration with baptism, forming with it a double sacrament, according to the expression of St. Cyprian. Among other reasons, so the reasons why oftentimes now, especially here in the West, we celebrate the two separately, well, there was a lot more infant baptisms all throughout the year. Bishop couldn't be at every single one of those. Then, as the word got spread, it made it harder to get to places because we had rural parishes, as well as we do have here in the diocese, stretching all the way from Iowa to Colorado. <laughs> and the growth of the diocese often prevented the bishop from being present at all the baptismal celebrations. So then there were some answers to this problem. In the West, Roman numeral I, or one, in the West, the desire to reserve the completion of baptism to the bishop caused the temporal separation of the two sacraments. So in the West here in the Latin Rite, we decided to say we still want the bishop to administer confirmation, so we're going to split the sacraments. But then in the East, we had a desire to keep them united so that confirmation is conferred by the priest who baptizes, but he can only do so with the myron, the chrism, consecrated by a bishop. So there's still that connection there with the bishop. And then in Roman numeral three, the practice of the Eastern churches shows us a greater emphasis for the unity of Christian initiation. 
and then that of the Latin church more clearly expresses the communion of the new Christian with the bishop as the guarantor and servant of the unity, Catholicity and apostolicity of his church, and hence the connection with the apostolic origins of Christ's church. So I like highlighting both of those because you get to see the full nature of the sacrament. Confirmation completes baptism. The East and the work, their practice really highlights that for us. But then also, confirmation ties us back to the original moment of Pentecost and to the apostles. So knowing both of that, we can see the beauty of the sacrament of confirmation. So then 1.6, who can receive confirmation? In the catechism, in letter A there, every baptized person not yet confirmed can and should receive the sacrament of confirmation. And we've talked about baptism, the Eucharist, and confirmation in a series because they form the sacraments of initiation. They form a unity that it follows the faithful should be obliged to receive this sacrament at an appropriate time. For without confirmation in the Eucharist, the baptiz baptism is certainly valid and efficacious, but Christian initiation remains incomplete. And then we only do confirmation once because it's fontal, like baptism, and it too imprints a soul with an indelible spiritual mark, the character, which is the sign that Jesus Christ has marked a Christian with the seal of his spirit. So who can receive confirmation? Anyone has been baptized and has not yet received confirmation, and you can only receive it once. And it too leaves a new character upon the soul. So then what does it do? It's actuation, and what are the effects? What are the fruits of it? Letter A there, I'm going to read the paragraph in its entirety from 1285 in the Catechism. Baptism, the Eucharist, and the Sacrament of Confirmation together constitute the sacraments of Christian initiation whose unity must be safeguarded. It must be explained to the faithful that the reception of the Sacrament of Confirmation is necessary for the completion of baptismal grace. Pause here. I want you all to know confirmation is necessary for the completion of baptismal grace. Because from our jar, what's water do in baptism? It cleans, it refreshes. What's confirmation do? We're going to see here in just a minute that it seals those effects in the soul. So just like we put water Thompson seal or Thompson water seal, on our decks, it's an oil-based product. Sometimes it's going to be water-based, but for a while you used oil-based polyurethane to keep wood intact. So too, why we administer confirmation with the imposition of hands and the anointing with chrism, with oil, because we want to seal in the effects of baptism so that we can reach the end goal of the race. For by the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized are more perfectly bound to the church and enriched with the special strength of the Holy Spirit. Hence, they are, as true witnesses of Christ, more strictly obliged to spread and defend the faith by word and deed. Flipping over there at the top, 
Baptism plants the seed of divine life. Confirmation matures and perfects it. And then Holy Eucharist is the nourishment that sustains it. Point B there. The name confirmation comes from the Latin word confirmatio, which if we look at the etymology of that word means to strengthen with. So if we opened up a catechism and we saw paragraph 1303, we're going to see language of more fully, more perfect. And this answers the question, why confirmation? As well as if we ask the question, is baptism insufficient if we have the language of more fully or more perfect, but the two are united? One establishes, and then the other seals and perfects what was established. Both, though, originate from Jesus Christ. They're both sacraments instituted by him who breathed the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and told them to wait, told them to wait for them to be clothed by the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem at his ascension and then sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So strengthened with. During the rite of confirmation, I'm going to skip down a little bit. I realize I should have put this, um, copying things back and forth. But just want to look more closely at that word confirmation, confirmatio. During the rite of confirmation, this is under, on that page, number 2.A. So we're going to jump, jump down. Individuals are roll called to which they respond in English, present. This present is a translation of the Latin ad sum, which is more than a simple responding of saying, I'm here, but has a directional component to it. So if we think of school, Hey, present, yep, I'm here. I'm just checking off the box. But the Latin that's called for in the rite of confirmation is ad sum, which says, I'm here and I'm moving in that direction. It has a directional component to it. And at this time, everyone's facing towards the altar, up God's holy mountain. So it's more accurately translated, I'm present and I'm heading in this direction. So during conversation on baptism, we made a note. Chad, I love this, how you put this. Baptism is not what happened to me when I was a baby or a long time ago, but is a present reality that is happening right now. The character and condition of my soul is a direct and immediate response, a result of my once upon a time baptism. The story that was is the story that is. So as we've been talking about confirmation, you probably haven't heard me say once in this entire evening that this is the sacrament of choosing to make one's faith one's own, which is a very common understanding. This is a sacrament. That's why it kind of leads towards this graduation mentality and the church today. I've reached the sacrament of confirmation. I've kind of made the faith my own. I'm kind of done with everything. But it's the completion of baptism. And so when Chad said that, it's not the story of just happened once. It's the present reality now. 
So confirmation is, is us coming to the altar at that roll call to say, I'm present. I'm here and I'm moving in that direction. So give me strength to continue go, moving in that direction. It's not just this like final choice. You're living out a reality that's corresponding to the life that you're already living. And God says, I see that. And I want you to continue moving in that direction. So I'm going to supply you with grace that's going to give you that strong push from me, that guiding hand to keep you moving in that direction. Every reception of the sacrament requires one thing. And that's when you come to the sacrament of confirmation, you should already possess faith. So every sacrament demands faith on our part to cooperate with that. And so confirmation just says, hey, I see what you're doing. Let me give you the strength to go with me to the end. So then paragraph 1308, and this isn't in your handout, but um, confirmation is sometimes called the sacrament of Christian maturity. And then the catechism says, we must not confuse adult faith with the adult age of natural growth, nor forget that baptismal grace is a grace of free unmerited election does not need ratification to become effective. So why isn't sacrament? I'm choosing to make my faith one own because it doesn't need ratification. It needs you to live into it. It doesn't need just personal assent. It needs you to be raised. And that's what parents do at baptism. They say, hey, we're going to raise our child in the faith. We're going to nurture this growth. And then when confirmation comes along, it's a sacrament of Christian maturity, but it doesn't mean that you have to be an adult and know everything that's going on in the present moment. Just like in the sacrament of matrimony, you make your vows, you receive the sacrament, but no one knows exactly what marriage has in store. So it's the same with confirmation. You receive the grace because you have faith that going forward, come what may, I know that the Holy Spirit is, has gifted me seven great gifts and that they're going to be for my disposal, come what may. So this is why we don't wait for an adult age to confirm the Diocese of Lincoln. So normally it's administered in fifth grade. The grace of the sacrament strengthens confirmation, the direction of Christian life. So why would we want to withhold that just for a later age? If they're already moving in this present direction in fifth grade. Why not supply the grace? Thus, confirmation firms and forms, matures and perfects a person in the Christian life. Okay. Should have put that explanation back up there. So I want to move to the centered part on page seven, where it says confirmation seals the grace and life of baptism, strengthens the Christian to live out the Christian calling, and sends the Christian out to speak the word, heal the injured, and perform signs and wonders. So it seals and perfects. Or it seals, perfects, and protects baptismal grace. Number one there, point A. By this anointing, the confirmand receives a mark, the seal of the Holy Spirit. The seal is a symbol of a person, a sign, 
of personal authority and that we share more deeply into the life of Jesus by receiving this sacrament. And it roots us more deeply into the sonship that we have received at baptism. And then letter B, the seal of the Holy Spirit makes our total belonging to Christ, our enrollment, and his service forever. Marks, not makes, marks. Confirmation unites us more firmly to Christ and renders our bond with the church more perfect. So what happened at baptism, what's happened, that water is now protected by the oil of chrism and the imposition of hands. And so we're sealed with that mark. Then it strengthens, just as we talked about. I'm here, I'm moving in that direction. The church says, I see that. I want to give you the grace to continue moving in that direction. So then in letter B, under number two, for strengthening, I'm going to just read the bolded line there. By confirmation, Christians, that is, those who are anointed, share more completely in the mission of Jesus Christ and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which he is filled. So it forms the nature of our life. And then over on point eight there, it sends us out. So as we heard in Acts 4, when the apostles pray and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they go and perform new signs, new wonders. They heal with their hands in the name of Jesus. They go and speak and proclaim the word even more boldly. So confirmation sends us, it directs, and then delivers us. So in letter A there, it gives us a special strength of the Holy Spirit to spread and defend the faith by word and action as true witnesses of Christ, to confess the name of Christ boldly and never be ashamed of the cross. Letter B, this character perfects the common priesthood of the faithful received in baptism and the confirmed person receives the power to profess faith in Christ publicly as it were officially. And then it delivers us. So from paragraph 1296 of the Catechism in letter C there, it is the promise of divine protection in the great eschatological trial. Helps deliver us from evil. So it sends us forward, but just as I kind of recounted what Peter and John realized, grace of God, you're untouchable. Letter D there. 1303 from the Catechism. Recall then that you have received the spiritual seal, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of right judgment and courage, the spirit of knowledge and reverence, the spirit of holy fear in God's presence. Guard what you have received. God the Father has marked you with his sign. Christ the Lord has confirmed you and placed his pledge, the spirit, in your hearts. So as we kind of wrap up what is the Sacrament of Confirmation, before we just talk about a few practicals um, that you all need to consider going forward, I want to leave you with that paragraph, something that after confirmation you should come back to. Recall then that you have received the spiritual seal, these seven gifts that are listed there. Guard what you have received. So in... The old rite of confirmation, and I actually, maybe it's still a new rite, too. Confirmation used to end with the bishop giving you a little slap on the cheek. Mm -hmm. And he'd say, 
remember what you have received? So one of my good friends who was baptized as a baby and received his first Holy Communion, but for some ever reason, I don't remember why Sean never received confirmation as a young adult. Um, he was confirmed when he was in boot camp. And the chaplain that did his confirmation, didn't you just give him a nice slap because in the military? So he slugs him in the chest and he says, remember what you have received. But to this day, Sean remembers what he has received. So 1.8, um, I'm going to talk about just some practicals here with confirmation um, as well as baptism um, for Sponsors uh, is the technical term for godparents in baptism, but we get to sponsors here. Letter A from the Catechism. Candidates for confirmation as for baptism. Finley, seek the spiritual help of a sponsor to emphasize the unity of the two sacraments. It is appropriate that this one be of the baptismal godparent. So that may or not, may not be possible, but um, let's say you're here because um, you weren't confirmed for whatever reason uh, as young, um, young adult or Ava's experience, she moved, they, they did at a later age, came to Nebraska. So um, kind of missed out on that time frame. So uh, whoever your baptismal godparent is, it shows great unity for the connection of the two to have them be the same person. Now, for me, my godparents were, my uncle was Catholic at the time. He eventually married a Lutheran and then now is no longer practicing. So for me, although the church says, hey, there's great beauty in having the same person fulfill the roles that shows the completion of baptism, wasn't even an option for me. Because Roman numeral two there from the Code of Canon Law 892. And so far as possible, there be there is to be a sponsor for the person to be confirmed. The sponsor is to take care that the confirmed person behaves as a true witness of Christ and faithfully fills the obligation inherent in this sacrament. So the person who's your sponsor should be living the faith. They're kind of, in a sense, your spiritual role model, spiritual coach, spiritual accountability partner. They want to help you continue to live the faith. Thus, in Roman numeral three, a sponsor must be a Catholic who is practicing the faith, which means attends Sunday Mass, Holy Days, strives to live the faith, receives Holy Communion and Reconciliation routinely, just some of the markers of what does it mean to actively practice the faith. They're not laboring under canonical penalty. That means a lot of things, but one of the most often cases is that they're not married outside of the Catholic Church. If they are a Catholic, or that should be, keep in mind this person's professing that they're Catholic. Catholics, when we're baptized, are bound to be married inside the church unless you get a dispensation. So if you get married outside the church, you're laboring under a canonical penalty, and thus you're not validly or valid to be a sponsor. You've got to be at least 16-year-old and then already received first Holy Communion and confirmation. I have forms, got here a little bit later. Actually, I should say 
forgot to bring them out of sponsor forms for you all. Um, we have many people in here who have identified their sponsors. Um, if you don't know who your sponsor might be yet, take home this list and then start looking for someone who's going to fulfill this. Um, and know that it's a reciprocal role. I like to talk about it mentor-mentee because oftentimes when you walk through the end of the way, you're going to be like, I am in love with God. I have come to know him more deeply intellectually. It's led me into this great encounter with him in the sacraments. I have come to know him actually greater in a deeper way. So your faith is going to be on fire. And that can be of great edification for your sponsor. So it's not just a one-way road. You both are in this together to now work to build up each other's faith. Sponsor is kind of the role of the coach to really help and push you. They should be the one that's, in a sense, mature. But know that your practice of the faith also has a part in the way that they practice their faith. Iron sharpened iron. So find a good fit. And then often, too, in letter B there, confirmation names, Roman numeral I, kind of explains why a name, what's important in a name. So when Catholic parents have a child, they may choose a saint's name as the child's given name and present that name at the infant's baptism. Have I told that story about Jacinta? I'm not going to tell it now, but okay. I don't remember. My daughter, Jacinta, Father Clark thought it would be a great idea. Don't tell anyone the name because there's a dialogue of what name do you give your child and you say the child's name. It's like, wouldn't it be great if no one knew the name until that day and I said, that's a great idea. It was a great idea. But um, that's what's referenced here, the name at the infant's baptism. But for those who receive baptism later in life or convert to Catholicism, the newly baptized or the newly confirmed may choose a name to reflect his or her, her new status as a Christian. And this name stands as a beautiful and concrete symbol and a reminder of spiritual conversion. So it's recommended that you consider adopting a confirmation name. And you don't have to change your name, but it's kind of added to as a middle name. So mine was St. Anthony of Padua. I chose him because when I was in fifth grade, this is why talking about the sacrament of maturity doesn't mean age. I had faith. I knew what I was getting myself into. I wanted to receive that grace, but the head wasn't all the way there because I chose St. Anthony of Padua because he's patron saint of horses. If you've seen me with my Broncos cup, I was like patron saint of horses. He has to be a giant Broncos fan. Thus, he is going to become my confirmation saint. So you can see, like, intellectual age or maturity, like, biologically, it doesn't always matter. Um, but oftentimes, uh, for our fifth graders, it kind of is a shot in the dark sometimes. But as Father Worth kind of attested to St. Michael not that long ago, um, ultimately the saint kind of comes to choose you too. And so there's providence, even in fifth grade, of me selecting St. Anthony of Padua. So then Roman numeral two there at the bottom of page eight. When deciding on a confirmation name, the goal is to pick the name of a saint you admire, can relate to, or aspire to be like. The saint will be bonded to you spiritually and will be your model in life and can be the one you turn to for guidance and protection. So then you might ask, but Blake... 
there are a thousand of saints. How do I choose? Well, here's just a few suggestions. Can't decide, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to shed his light on who he thinks is the best name for you. Um, next week, I can bring a book of saints, or you can begin to look up online. Of just to begin to explore the lives of popular saints who have had a profound impact on the church. Um, you can look and see what have they went through, what are some of their hobbies or their triumphs, and then uh, examples of faith. But then also, oftentimes, because we're human persons and we have specific cares in life, we make saints patrons of things. So we identify what they particularly cared with. There's a great story of St. Anthony losing his book of Psalms and miraculously it comes back to him. So now he's patron saint of lost things. So a lot of people, uh, a lot of people you might hear say, Tony, Tony, look around, something's lost and can't be found. That's St. Anthony. You're asking for his intercession. Hey, I've lost this. You've experienced this in your life. You lost this dear book of Psalms, this Psalter, and it was returned to you. So um, please, before God's behalf that I can find my lost item. Um, so there's hobbies or causes that the saints are associated with that we say in a particular way, they care about this thing. So go and look at what your hobbies are, or some of the causes that you really care about, and then try to find the patron of that hobby. Um, another example could be virtue. Like look at their lives or as you come to know them what's a virtue that you maybe have deep within yourself um, that you find connection with or that you're like I need to be more of this so I want to have this saint praying for me on my behalf and then also another legitimate option which in a symbolic way recalls our baptism is like let's say your name's Mark and you just went into choose Saint Mark so there's a completion of baptism at confirmation, so you can just say, my confirmation name is Mark. Roman numeral four there. If you've narrowed down your choices and are stuck and decide, can't decide, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to shed his light on who he thinks is the best name for you. Um, and then to conclude, before you receive the sacrament, pray to the saint whose name you'll be using as your confirmation saint. Ask this saint to help you make moral choices and to be your intercessor before God wherever you, whenever you call on him or her. And then don't forget about your namesake once you get confirmed. That's the thing I like to do with even our sixth graders. They were just confirmed last year. Hey, do you remember confirmation saint? Recall, remember what you have received, okay? Because um, they don't forget about you. Like they're in heaven. They will remember you forever. So do your part and remember them. Okay. Practicalities as well as me being long-winded made us go a little bit longer. So any questions? They're in heaven. They will remember you forever. So do your part and remember them. Okay. Practicalities as well as me being long-winded made us go a little bit longer. So any questions? Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean.
and at our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.